All right, everybody, welcome back to the 307 Podcast. Holy smokes. We got we have a special guest for you guys today. I've been so pumped about this episode. No pressure, by the way, Chris. What's up, brother? <laughs> yeah, special is one descriptor. That's we, doctor. That's doctor. We, look, Don't call him Chris. We have our first doctor on the podcast, but even, okay, I'm going to ask you this later, but even more important to me, we got another team guy on the podcast. It's so cool to have another team guy in the studio, man. It's special. It, to me. It is. It's it's taken us a bit to get together. I know we've crossed paths a few times in downtown Rome, Georgia, because it's such a uh, large place, we wouldn't run into each other. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that was sarcasm. My wife says I'm not allowed to use that. So, But, uh, yeah, Chad and I have crossed paths quite a few times just in passing and uh, here recently at one of the uh, local restaurants. And, uh, yeah, I was, I've was i been looking forward to it. Me too, brother. Me too. And, and I just noticed... It looks like a Toyota dealership out there in in, yeah. in front of the in front of HQ, dude. Chris, what is up with team guys in Tacomas, man? They last, and spending eight. You know, the truck I would like to get is eighty plus thousand dollars. I just checked here recently, and it's like I can't bring myself to do it. Maybe if I win the lottery. Someday, what do you want? The I don't tundra? play the lottery. Do you want the Tundra or like a souped up Tacoma? I would just uh, I would want a full size, mm-hmm. something that I can tow a trailer with. Yeah, a bit, bit better, but uh, I mean, I went from an outback being in California, San Diego, where hunting is more or less frowned upon, and so I was getting into the beach scene, paddle boards, that whole thing, and then uh, when I came out to the East Coast, I started hunting, putting a harvested deer in the back of an outback. It worked once, but I saw that that might not be the best thing <laughs> in the future, so when we sold our house in Virginia, my wife finally said, she said, you know what, get your truck. So we went out and got, and she goes, do you have to get new? And I went, well, the used are 30 and this, yeah. new, and this new one's 32. I might as well get the new one. Yeah. So I've got a five-year-old truck with 50,000 miles on it. So it's, you know, that's what it's for. It's for putting turkey and deer and dead squirrels and things yeah. that I get out in the woods and get after. I just remember you, you know, at the team, man, you pull up in front of the team and it's like just a parking lot full of Tacomas. I mean, that's, that, yeah, it's just a parking lot full of Tacomas. So, well, when the bonuses kicked in, that kind of upgraded to the full size trucks. So, <laughs> let's be <Yeah>. honest. <laughs> well, dude, it, uh, like I say, it's an honor and a pleasure. I, I got, I want to, I'm really interested in starting at the beginning of your story, Chris, because uh, what year did you join the Navy? 1987. 87. Okay. Where'd you grow up? In Virginia Beach. Really? Yeah. Okay. My dad was a master chief in the SEAL teams. Okay. I'm <laughs> learning new stuff the whole time. This is this is giving me a little insight because I was I'm interested in in your generation because it's I think it's so much different than mine in a way because we were in a war when I joined the Navy. Um you guys in the 80s there wasn't a whole lot going on. There was, there's always something going on, but there wasn't a big conflict. And I just, I just have to, I have to wonder what, what drove you to become a SEAL uh, during that at that place in time. And and also, there were no books about right. SEALs. There were no movies about. Nobody knew what this thing was. 
Well, I grew up, you know, on weekends where people were doing camping trips and stuff like that. I was at the team area with my dad. He was in UDT 21 and then SDVs. So I grew up gr- crawling around in them, exploring the attic, finding different gear, all of that kind of stuff. So I had an awareness of it. But if you'd asked me six months before I joined the Navy that I was going to join the Navy, I'd be like, yeah, that's the last thing I'm going to do. I mean, I don't even know who my dad is. He's deployed so much. So, but I, what happened, I was going to Old Dominion University and I was trying to get financial aid. So I moved out of my parents' house to get financial aid. So I was working a couple jobs, going to school, making it happen. And then uh, applied for all this financial aid and Basically, between Pell Grants and everything else, I was going to get paid to go to school, which is going to be awesome. But Bush Sr. changed the rules on, first, back up a second, my parents' accountant claimed me on their income tax, which ruined all my financial aid. So I stayed out of school for a year, and then Bush Sr. changed the rule going back one year to two years, whether you were on your parents' taxes, because it ruined all my Pell Grants and financial aid. Yeah. So I was like, okay, I'm going to join the Navy. And I went to the Sea College program. Now, mind you, I'm going there and I talked to the recruiter and he says, yeah, you know, you can get there and you can take the SEAL test at boot camp. And if you pass it, you can go out to Bud's. And if you make it there, just go ahead and get out of the teams at four years and you can still get all this money for college. I was like, all right. So I get the boot camp and three weeks into boot camp, we're going up and talking to the people about A schools and all that. And they said, so, yeah, you're on the C college program. We don't need to talk to you. I go, wait a minute. I want to try for an A school. And they're like, no, you're on the C college program. You go to C and then you go to college. Mm. And I was like, interesting. Can I take the SEAL test? They're like, no, you go to C and you go to college. And I went, well, that dirtbag back in Richmond lied to me. Yeah. And uh, first time I had to, you know, I, I go to the IG and he says, well, write your allegation out. I come back after lunch and he says, calls the guy up and says, now read your allegation. And I went. Okay, I read my allegation. And because the first thing the senior chief said is, is that we're going to have a reading test here first, what my contract said. And I said, yeah. senior, I know what my contract says. I don't want the guy lying to anybody else. That's really what I'm trying to stop here. Yeah. Because he lied to me. Um, lo and behold, the guy's like, yeah, that's exactly what I told him. And they're like, confirmed allegation. You know, the master chief made a drug deal with me after I talked to Master Chief Fradenberg, who was the detailer. I grew up with his son and high school which mm-hmm. kind of blew the master chief away and he's just like like who do you know but <laughs> it was just kind of comical he finally handed me the phone and let me just talk to the master chief instead of trying to relay the message and it was kind of frustrating on his part but he said we'll make you a deal we'll let you take the seal test if you pass it then we'll let you go to buds and go to an a school if you don't you're going to go to c and go to college i went that's a fair enough deal that's all i'm asking for yeah now mind you up in great lakes april-ish time frame it was still pretty cold out and snowing so we were snowed in so they let me take the test but it was 29 laps around the indoor pool in the basement Mm -hmm. let's just say that that didn't go so well a little short track (laughs) yeah but i got a little warmer they let me take it again and then i made it and got out to buds so it was uh that was in 87 tore all the ligaments stepping in a hole right after hell week hold on hold on i gotta i gotta i gotta stop real quick before we go into that so, your was your was your dad retired when you joined, or was he still active duty when you joined the Navy? Fortunately, he was retired long enough that people didn't put the connection together till I got to Hell Week, 
and they figured it out. Okay. All right. So now Shell Shellnut had a good time with that. Oh, okay. So did Januzzi. So now how how did he feel about you pursuing this career path? Well, his first statement was is you can tell your mother. And then I was like, all right, I'll do that. Because they both knew what was what was involved in this choice. Oh, yeah. I think that's the thing. That's what's different in your in your scenario. Because, like, my mom and dad, like, they had no clue right. what was about to happen. They fully they were fully aware of what you were about to have to endure. Mom was not happy about it because she's like, I worried about your dad and, you know, in that, we'll just say stuff to keep it, you know, a little G here. But she was pretty pissed off that I was doing that. She goes, because it wasn't college. Yeah. Um, but I was paying for my own college anyway. So, I mean, I'm making my own calls. And, you know, dad, he was like, he just wanted me to do what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Now, I was angry with him because I didn't think he was giving me the secret sauce. So he then finally had a conversation with me. He goes, look, all I can hope is the way I raised you is put a fire in your gut that'll get you through the program. It's going to be on you. It's not the dog in the fight, but the fight in the dog. I guess I can take you out back and make you do mud, you know, push push ups and mm-hmm. sit ups in a mud puddle or whatever else. And you've done that all your life. Yeah. And he goes, when you get out there, it's just a different game. And uh, yes, it was. So there were some, <laughs> there were some expert. I could see that. Like I, I could see you being like, Dad, what's the formula? Yeah. Like you did it. Like what's the formula? Yeah. Yeah, I totally. Asked. And there is not a formula. There is not. <laughs> there is not. That is so now, awesome. He did come to me when I was healing from the torn ligaments in the ankle and say, you don't have to do this for me. And I just kind of politely told him, I was like, dad, I ain't putting up with all this shit for you. Yeah. I was just like, we're, 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 we're doing and we're going to make it through the program mm-hmm. because I want to do this. Mm-hmm. And he's like, that's all I wanted to hear. I'll cheer you on. I love that, man. Now, my brother, when he went through Buds, wasn't as lucky. Because all the instructor knew both my dad and me. So he got some extra attention when he went through. Did he did did your brother make it through Buds? Oh yeah, he retired as a Navy SEAL. Come on, man. Yep, he's a Mustang as well. He retired as an O three senior O three. Wow, dude. So much heritage in the teams, man. Yeah. That is so awesome, man. Now, back in those days. Was it the the same PST? Do you know the PST yeah. we take now? So was were same they one. running the same PST same back one. then? Yeah. Okay. And essentially, you have to take the PST, yep. and then you get a shot yes. to go out to Buds. Yep. But that's when they didn't have the rating yet. Yeah. So instead of being intentionally stupid as an IS, I was obviously stupid as an OS. Uh-huh. Um, and I just went back to Virginia Beach and went to A school. You know, ace the program, was number three in a class, only because I got lazy in the last half I could coast. Yeah, I, I was training. I wasn't worried about a school. I was worried about what was next. Yeah. So yeah, it would it worked out pretty well. Now back in those days, that was back when buds was still hard. Uh, <laughs> my last my buds class was the last hard buds class. True. Two seven eight. <laughs> so, it, it you know if, if you want to think that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'll let you go there. Well, <laughs> I heard two seven nine. I heard them, no. they got cake <laughs> two, and everything. Two, yeah, two seven eight was the last hard buds class. But obviously, Chris and I had a similar experience because we went through when it was still hard. Yeah, what yeah. buds class did you class up with? One fifty one. One fifty one. What was, was only in two, but I finished with one fifty five. Okay, one fifty one finished with one fifty five because you had the injury in Hell Week, which right. I want to hit uh, in, after Hell Week. After Hell Week, okay. 
Okay, yeah, I definitely want to hit that. What do you re- what do you, do you remember anything about showing up? What it felt like? What is there anything that stands out to you in first phase leading up to Hell Week? I think what's st- I mean, just from a, a big picture perspective is is, is that. When you show up and look at the eyes of guys that are showing up, and then you look at the guys, the eyes and the guys that have been through Hell Week, there's there's a distinct yeah difference. There's just a self assurance. There's just a self confidence, and I don't mean an arrogance or a cockiness. There's just a yeah, whatever it is, I'm going to do it. You know, some people kind of have that mindset, but you don't see it. You know, typically team guys walk into a room and people just see something. They sense something different yeah. about that individual. The, the presence they walk in with is usually one of self-confidence and just a lot of self-assurance. Yeah. Yeah. I, that brings up a good point. I rem, I can, when I reflect on that, I remember that too. The difference between the pe- the guys there that had the brown shirts on that had been through mm-hmm. Hell Week and uh, and us in white shirts, yep. and and it was a, a drastic difference in the way you carried yourself around that compound. Mm-hmm. Um, now, did you have your instructors? Were they? Did you have got Vietnam era guys in the instructor cadre, or were you? A couple of the master chiefs, I think, were, but uh-huh. not for the most part. No. Okay. Winter time or summertime? Hell week was in February. And then when I reclassed back up, we graduated in December. So back that up four months. Okay. Okay. All right. We get through Hell Week. Mm-hmm. Any memories from Hell Week? I've tried to I tried to articulate this to the group of folks that I work with now, and it just trying mm-hmm. to get them to comprehend how you can be driven off of somebody else's misery. Yeah is just foreign to them. They don't, they don't think in that, in that light. But, you know, when we went to Tuesday night in Lion's Lope and my boat, my boat crew thought we could get away with it with every other guy with his feet on the ground. And we're, we weren't smart enough to realize that we're beating everybody by way too much. So they knew we were cheating. So they pulled us out of the water, made us start over. So the lion's lope is you're in a centipede. You've got your legs around the guy in front of you's waist, and you're basically just back paddling down the shoreline to a certain distance. Well, the water temp was about 52-ish. You know, God's got a sick sense, a sick sense of humor. The Siberian low comes down right at Hell Week. I don't know how they time that, but they do. <laughs> Steel Pier is really fun in those instances. Oh, I that, man. But uh, so we started over, but somebody else had gone to get out of the water in front of the CO and then went into a epileptic conniptions, just started flopping and twitching on the ground from hypothermia. And so he commanded everybody out of the water. So we got to run around the ball field with our boats to warm up. To warm up, yeah. Yeah, which is exactly what we wanted to do. And then we're standing there. We knew the new crew was coming on. So the 11 o'clock crew was coming on. Mm -hmm. The 11 o'clock crew of instructors. They're fresh. They're fresh. But they've always been the nice guys. So they come in in a calm voice and they, you know, they had a powwow with the earlier instructors, the th- you know, the the three to eleven instructors, and we're thinking, okay, we're doing something else. They come up and they go, gentlemen, we know it's been a rough night. The water's a bit cold, and 
<laughs> yeah, but we've got a new event for you all this evening. Now, mind you, there's probably about, I want to say 50-ish, 55 of us at this point. Um, pretty big number for a Colt, for a, a winter Wintertime, hell Wintertime, yeah. And then they said, we're going to do an evolution you've never tried before or never heard of. Let me explain what it is. First, we call it Lion's Lope. And literally, they couldn't deflate the boats fast enough. They had guys lined up at the bell quitting. They were like, nuh-uh, not me, not doing that again. And then after the 25 or so guys quit, they said, okay, everybody in your boats, round the world paddle. You know, and mm-hmm. it was just that mental... You know, and a guy asked me how I was doing in the midst of that with all these people quitting. And I'm like, they're dropping like flies. Who's next? You know, it, yeah. it was just like, if you don't want to be here, leave. Yeah. You know, because I want to depend on you. Yeah. Going forward. And you, it's, it's that. And also you, you, I think you get to a point in Buds where you realize this is a game. Buds is a, you're playing a game against these instructors. And a lot of times these instructors are going to force you into situations until enough people quit. And then, you know, they're going to pull back. Right. So when people are quitting, you know, they're waiting for, they're waiting for their quota. Right. Mm -hmm. And when they get it dialed down to it, they, they feel like they've weeded enough people out through this miserable evolution. They're going to back off just a little bit. Right. Mm -hmm. So it does, it feeds your soul. When you see people quitting in buds, you don't judge that person. No, it is no judgment whatsoever. They just go away. Right. Right. Um, but the game is also in your own head. It's the game with yourself. I out, lived that guy exactly and that turns into fuel for me moving forward as sick as that is but <laughs> yeah yeah talk about steel pier a little bit i don't think i don't know probably nobody knows what the steel pier is steel pier that's is a literally, cold place it's a steel barge that boats tie up to now mind you this was monday morning and it was our first person to quit but what we had is we've now been awake. It, essentially, going into Hell Week, you really don't sleep in anticipation of it on Friday or Saturday. You're exhausted Sunday night, and then they break you out with flashbangs and grenade simulators and M60 machine guns and a lot of chaos and smoke and just really disorient you, and it's all chaos, and they've got you doing one evolution physically after another. You do rock portage. Winter time, the waves are on the rocks, so you're crashing into the rocks. You're putting your boat up on there. Not good enough. Do it again. Whole nine yards. Next, early, early that morning, they take you over to Steel Pier. Strip you down. You've basically got a pair of bike shorts on, you know, and they then sent us all out into the water for uh, water ballet. They wanted to see a bunch of different shapes. So it was like make a star, make a square, make a triangle. You know, and you got a bunch of bald-headed guys out there freezing to death because the water's about 52, 53-ish. So you put your face in the water, you got an ice cream headache, bottom mm-hmm. line. So you're out there doing this, and then they pull you out and stand you up in the pier, and you're up there, you're, you're jackhammering, and you're sitting there, and then they lay you down. And then every 15 seconds, they would roll you a quarter turn so you couldn't warm up a spot <laughs> on the steel pier. <laughs> so we're just sitting there doing this evolution, and then after they get you rolled over like this hot dog, you know, all four sides... They'd stand you back up, put you back in the water, and then they'd pull you out and they'd say, if you can get dressed in 30 seconds, now mind you, all your clothes are wet and sandy. You're wet and sandy. Anybody try to put on wool socks when you're wet and sandy? (laughs) Nothing moves fast. 
And you're okay. frozen. And you're frozen. Yeah. You can't move. Your 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 nether regions are pulled so far up inside you that you just kind of hobble because you can't walk too fast <laughs> because you're racking yourself in the process. I mean, they're really they're, they're they're so buried up inside your gut, they're gone. Oh yeah. And then what happened? We had one young officer that said, "We're not going to do it." We had one guy who couldn't get dressed, so this young ensign thought he was going to stand up for him and the rest of the class and said, "We're not going to do that." And uh, it was Chief Shellnut at the time, and he was just like, "So, let me get this straight, sir. Are you saying you quit?" No, I'm saying we're just not going to do that. And he just kind of looked over his shoulder gave the nod to one of the other instructors and said, get the bell. And they brought the bell over. And then the ensign was asked, are you sure that you're not going to do this because you're quitting? And if you're going to quit, you need to ring the bell. And now, mind you, we're watching the sun come up, so we know we're going to breakfast. Mm-hmm. We know breakfast is soon. One thing the Brits proved a long time ago is that if, they f- if you feed the body, you can keep it awake indefinitely. You're not worth much mentally or cognitively, but you can stay awake indefinitely. We all knew we were going to breakfast because they fed us 6-12, 6-12, you know, four times a day, every day for the entire time period. Everybody knew we were going to breakfast. The Sanson said he was just going to make a stand for the class. He rings the bell, and as they put the blanket on him and give him a cup of hot chocolate, Shellnut looks at everybody and says, okay, everybody get dressed, we're going to chow. So it was this constant psychological battle. I mean, people think Bud's is so physical, but it's about, I want to say 75, 25, maybe 80, 20, mental, physical. Yeah, yeah. Um, Now, everybody's got their demon. Mine was running. Running in that powder out there, and I'm a toe runner, just tore me up. I spent every Saturday morning running because I needed more instruction on how to run. (laughs) It's the last thing I wanted or needed. Yeah. And every time I got through a phase and got to the final time and passed that time, I'd move to the next phase and they'd drop the time two minutes. Yep. So I'd spend every next Saturday running to get better at running. Mm. I mean, O-course, swim, academics, had all that stuff, could do really well. I mean, they thought I was gun ducking the running because I was good at the O-course and some of the other things. Yeah, It was just that, that running in that powder out there in San Diego, just it just was counter to how I learned how to run. Yeah, in boots and long yes. pants. Yes. And you guys probably had, did you guys wear jungle boots? Yeah. Yeah, so you guys had jungle boots. At least we had we had Bates boots. This is so interesting to me to hear this history. It really is because there are differences. You know, you talked about uh, one of your classmates coming out of the water and going into essentially seizures because of hypothermia. Yeah. Well, in our class, they... We actually swallowed microchips, right? That set in our gut. Were so you the first ones to do that? Might have been. We. I don't know if that was new or if that had been around, but we did that, and so they could monitor our core body temperature with this little scan gun, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it it didn't. I don't know. I, I don't know what to say about that. I think it made the training safer, but it increased their capacity to push us to the very brink without actually injuring guys like like right. well the you know, corpsman didn't classmate. have to cup the thermometer from the beach because they based it on water temp and time that they could keep you in the water that's right now they could just do it based on people's core temperatures that's right yeah so, i mean they just refined how they could to- i mean instruct you they're, they're <laughs> dude it's genious it's the yeah. most genius process 
that I have ever witnessed in my life. Just just the uh, the intricacy of their ability <clears throat> to create a warrior to mm-hmm. make you something special, to make you something that you were not. Uh, it's genius, man. And well, to hear the history that, to, is awesome. To bring people to the same level. There's no guessing. Yeah. Because at a minimum, you hit the teams, you know, you know what people have gone through to get to that point. Yep. So you know where the standard is coming into the teams. Now, that doesn't mean people that shouldn't be there don't make it through. But for the most part, a standard has been set that people, of, people were pushed pushed to a point that they were challenged and stretched well beyond anything they thought they could do. A very And a very high percentage of the people that come out the end of that school are are at that standard. You're right. Yes. They're they're now like like Chris said, some of them are are under that's a very small portion right. though. The majority are right there at that standard. I think that's what's uh one of the coolest things to me about buds. I think that we as team guys, as SEALs, share that maybe no one else in the military really shares to the same level as us is the fact that you can have immediate trust when you have another team guy that comes alongside you like that's just it's just well, built the, in the, it's built in in such a way that you don't you learn how to follow and team very well going through buds yes and the reason for that is is that you don't want to be the guy that lets your teammate down or your leader down. Mm-hmm. So you learn how to follow well and you learn how to team very well to a sacrificial level. Now, when you hit the teams and you get a department and you're in charge of air ops, you don't do your job to the best that it can be done. Somebody might not be coming home to their family. Yep. And it'll be because you didn't do your job. No one wants to be that guy. Yep. So the, the persistence and excellence and moving the bar and squeezing out another half percent. It's got me in trouble in the civilian world more than once because I forget about the 85 or the 80% that we accomplished. It's like, now how are we squeezing out another half percent? Yeah, yeah. And I'm so zeroed in on that half percent that people are like, you're really missing the forest through the trees here. Look how, mo- look how far we've come. Yeah, but we can get another half percent of performance. Yeah. You know, there's the 90 to 100 that mm-hmm. Murphy gets a vote. That's not worth spending any time on. But as we try to pursue excellence, I mean, that's really what you learn in buds is you don't want to be the one to let anybody down. Mm. And you, yeah, you talked about learning, learning how to follow and how to team and be a part of a team. Mm-hmm. That is, I, ne- I never knew this, but that is such a foreign concept. It is. To regular. Most like, people have never been taught how to be a, a, te- a good teammate. Oh my, it's or a good so follower. foreign, man. And then they're put in charge. And expected to be a leader. Yeah. You know, and yeah. my attitude on leadership is, is is that if I were to sit here and, and, and look at the two of you and say, you know, I'm I'm pretty humble, ain't I? You'd probably look at me and laugh a little bit, but that's about an arrogant statement to make. Yeah. But if I looked at you and said, I'm a leader, well, am I? Is there evidence of having led? Mm-hmm. You earn leadership. Yeah. The people that you've led are the one that call you a leader. You might be in charge. You might be a manager or a supervisor or, you know, senior person in, in charge. 
you're not leading until people feel led. And there's evidence of leadership having happened. And when I coach people on that aspect, it's like, look, you have to earn that daily. And it's easy to yeah. lose. Easy to lose. Yep. It, I think a lot of a lot of listeners may be may be a little confused about how the learning how to be a team member and learning also how to follow, right? The creed says we will lead and be led, right? So both those aspects. A lot of people may be confused when we when we're talking about those two aspects. Essentially, knowing how to follow and be a part of the team. Well, why should a leader need to know those two aspects? Uh, one, it helps them understand the dynamics of a team and how to manage that team. But two, one thing I've really been realizing here in business lately, now that we actually have employees here at 307 Project, team we call them team members, but essentially they work for 307 Project. And and the way that, the way that I feel is that, yes, I'm the leader, but I actually am working for them. Sure. That, I mean, that's how I feel. I feel like every, like it drives me to be better. The more team members that I have that are depending on me for certain aspects of, of business and, and doing what we do, I'm working, I'm leading them, but I'm also working for them. Yeah. Like that drives me, but that's because I understand both dynamics. Uh, I, I understand the dynamic of what a leader needs to do but also the dynamic of being part of a team and following and supporting the team, working for the team, even as a leader. Well, where does your team learn how to follow? Where does our team here learn how to follow? Yeah. From the leader. (laughs) Well, yeah. uh, Can can I take a tangent on this one? Yeah, go go for it, man, because that's a deep question. Where did the 12... Learn how to lead. From Jesus. Okay. Where did the 12 learn how to follow in team? Where did they learn how to follow in team? Uh, Did Jesus stop following his father Joseph and Mary and the Lord when he was leading the 12? Or did he model how to follow the Lord for the 12 so they understood how to follow? Did he team for? Did he team with them, and model how to team with them? Did he stop leading and following to show them how to team? See, a lot of leaders have it all mixed up at mm-hmm. where their where where their folks are supposed to learn learn how to lead team and follow. And when I coach folks, the first the first challenge we start with is the one in the mirror, because if somebody says that they've got people that don't follow well, there's a a high probability that we've got a leader that doesn't know how to follow Mm. because like a parent and a child, they're going to model what they see. Mm. So if you're not modeling good followership, guess what? (laughs) That's where they're learning how to follow. Otherwise, where are they learning it from? I love that, man. So, I mean, the whole idea and the premise and what you nailed with your folks is you feel that you're serving them. Yes, you, you think about. I feel that deep within me, man. But when you think about when Jesus washed the feet, and I was just talking to somebody about this in, in a, an emotional intelligence session about the fact that when he washed those feet, you got to remember how stinky those feet really were. Yeah, and what they were walking through, and how low did he lower himself to then serve them, to show them 
This is how you lead. Wow, man. So when we think, when you think about servant leadership, teamsmanship, and followership, they're all intertwined. Yes. Moment to moment, I don't stop leading my bride or being head of household when I'm working, teaming, and following folks at work. I mean, there are times that my wife is leading me, and I'm good with that. I mean, before the internet and being able to pay bills online, I mean, she had the household. I couldn't just parachute in every couple of weeks with a big bag of dirty laundry and then leave on my next trip and expect me to be able to take over every time I came into the household because that would upset her rhythm, her Mm -hmm. battle rhythm. Mm -hmm. I had more respect and love for her than that. I'd fall in line. I mean, I was still the head of the household. She still submitted to me as it's designed. But in the scheme of things, I mean, she had control of the bills, run of the house. I mean, she had a system in play for our daughter. I had to learn how to fall into that and not disrupt it. Mm. Um, That's a big lesson, man. Learning how to lead team and follow in all of our circles of influence and and the roles that we have. People try to be schizophrenic in their leadership. They try to lead this way at home and this way at work and this way in front of their friends. And the reality is when we're squeezed, when we hit that stress point, what's in us is going to come out. So if command and control is what you like to use, Trust me, command and control doesn't work so good with your bride and your daughter. Tried that one. Didn't work so well. Yeah. I mean, you've got to reinvent. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's that's a big piece to what you learn going through that whole program is you learn how to team and follow with a level of trust that you were talking about. Yep. And that just that reckless abandonment. I don't have to look to see if somebody's there because I know they're going to be that's there. That's right. And it almost the the process of of buds and and even throughout the career of of being a seal, those traits and those skills become second nature. Yeah. To where, I mean, oh, over the months and years, and and maybe it's just because of the intensity of it. Maybe it happens faster than it can happen in out here in in, in regular life, but. It becomes second nature. I mean, I, I've been feeling the feeling I just described about my team here at 307 Project, how I feel as if I'm actually working for them and serving them. I didn't have to intentionally do that. I just started. That's just the way. That's just second nature, man. And what a valuable gift we had, man, to yeah. be able to go through that and learn that. Right. What a valuable gift. Um. I want to talk about this injury you had after Hell Week. There's a dip in the road. There's a hole in the road between, at that time, it was five and buds. And it was coming out the gate, making that right-hand turn, going to chow for lunch. You know, singing the chant, to my left, to my left. Ah! (laughs) Mm. Ankle rolled in, rolled all the way out. By the time they walked me over to medical, it was already a football. And uh, they're like, yeah, you're rolled. I tried to get back into class two months later, and the doc just said, look, you got one or two options. He goes, well, you got three. You could quit. I don't think you're going to do that. I could let you in class, and I'll see you in a performance role. That won't look good in two weeks. Or you can let me put you back into class when I think you're ready to class back up. Mm -hmm. Now, even after getting class back up, I pretty much had a Motrin, Tylenol, Endocin. Yeah, I know you're not supposed to take them all at once, but you know when you're in pain— you got to do it. You now. do. You do what you want. You do what you want. You do what you think you need to do 
to make it through. Now, that's before uh, sports medicine hit the teams. So when I got hurt, I would skip out on the cleanup, go back to my room. I took a, I had two years of sports medicine at Old Dominion University. So I took a dowel out of the closet, found a, a wood plank and an ice bucket that I turned into slush water, and I was doing my own physical therapy to get my ankle into enough shape that I could get back into class. Wow, man. It isn't like now, when I was XO at the Center for Seal and Swick, and we basically escorted the owner of the San Francisco 49ers around the compound, we had equipment inside with our orthopedic specialists, the weight coach, yep, the nutritionists, you know, all the all, all the docs that you could possibly need dedicated assets just to the teams yeah just to get people on programs that work for them and put them in their best possible position trying to get 15 years out of a guy as opposed to 10 yep um and we had equipment in there that the 49ers didn't have he's looking at his guy and the, all of a sudden you see the pad of paper and everything's coming mm-hmm. out and the guy's getting all the nomenclatures of all the equipment that they had inside the facility to recondition guys and bring them back up smartly mm-hmm. you know so that's just the the difference in how far we've come at looking at the warrior as a tactical athlete yeah and not just a just military pure person. yeah pure, pure running on pure yeah. grit yeah right. that's right now did that was that when you had that injury obviously that you had you had a lot invested now because right. you've been through all this pain and suffering and training and going through hell week and was that a crushing blow to you mentally how did you how did you deal with that did you know you were going to get back did you just uh, i mean when it started dragging on is probably when it got hard watching two classes graduate yeah was hard so i watched 152 151 152 move through the process and then I'm watching two other classes graduate, and it was just like, "What am I doing?" And that oh, brown, I need to get back in class. And that brown, you so you were a brown shirt rollback at this point. I believe I was. Okay, but it was the week after hell. I rolled back into the next class. They were week after hell week. Gotcha. Okay. Into the uh, hydro recon phase. That that and that rollback that rollback land is not a fun place to be. Because you're still in the compound, mm-hmm. like instructors are still heckling you, like oh, yeah. you're still out there. It's not like you're just yeah. There's still motivational moments. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that is not a fun place to be. I remember watching those guys that had had gotten rolled and they were on hold for a while, and I was like, "Ooh, that looks miserable." Because they're still getting beat, but they're not making any progress. The beating isn't for nothing. I had Chief Hunsecker put me in the lean and rest and forget about me. I was in a lean and rest for a couple of hours. That happens. <laughs> <laughs> that happens. He finally came out and he goes, did I forget about you? Recover. And then just casually walked off like it was no big deal. <laughs> it was no I'm big deal like, to him. <laughs> we, we, had a, we, had a, uh, we had a classmate in third phase. They, uh, they had an old metal clawfoot bathtub yep. out there, stainless steel. And they would fill it up with ice. It was a dip tank, basically, mm-hmm. ice water. They put him in that thing. They forgot about him. <laughs> he nearly died. He stayed in there. When they pulled him out, he couldn't even walk. I don't, I, don't, I don't doubt it. We had to carry him 
in, indoors to warm him back up and essentially resuscitate him. That bathtub has made its rounds because it used to sit, there used to be two of them next to the podium on yeah. the grinder. Yep. And then periodically when people would become a little PC and say that's not right, then they replaced them with a couple of IBSs that you would actually have to go hit, under the tubes. Into, go under the tubes. Yep. And then a different CO would come and he'd say, where are the bathtubs? And the bathtubs would come back. And then so those, those bathtubs have made the rounds. Brutal, man. Uh, so you class back up with 155. Right. Okay. How was second phase? Second phase then was out on the island. Was it really? Yeah. It was so ours was all in San Diego Bay just across the road over there. What? Our second, they shifted the phases. Uh-huh. I think it was in the 160s where dive phase got shifted to second phase and then third phase then became the island phase. Are you serious? So my... Huh. Our ground phase was second phase. Second phase. Yeah. No kidding, man. Yeah. So, so you guys went straight from first phase out to San Clemente. We did about three weeks. We would do some of the stuff out there in the desert there in San Diego and prep for it, but then we spent our month out there on the island. Yeah, yeah. We were in the class. There was a class before us that the uh, gentleman had ingested too much water on his five-and-a-half-mile swim and passed because his core temperature lowered too much and they couldn't revive him. We mm. were the last class. I think they put it back out there now, but we were the last class for a lot of years to actually do their five-and-a-half-mile swim out there on the island. On the island, yeah, because yeah. we we did our five-and-a-half-mile swim right there in front of the compound right. in the ocean. Yeah, we didn't do it on the island. That is so wild, man. I did not know that the phases used to be flip-flopped like yeah, that. They sure were. Holy smokes. Um Dude, San Clemente Island, what a special place. Let me tell you what I remember from San Clemente Island, a few of the high points. I want to see how much of this was the same. When, look, I love hearing about this stuff, man. It's so – I don't get to – I don't talk about buds a lot, but when I have the opportunity to hear this, this perspective of it, it's just awesome to me. The island is – you are stuck on this island with the instructors and there's very little headshed. There's very little oversight out there. So the instructors... And no one can hear you scream. Exactly. The instructors really have full reign of you now. When you're going through first phase, you're you're in this big compound. There's, you know, you've got... You're a fishbowl. People can see. People can see. You're out on the island all that oversight goes away and you're stuck out there with these instructors and man let me tell you they take the gloves off now when i was when i went through third phase the instructors lived on the island or they hung out in a place called the hell box mm -hmm. do you guys have the hell box oh, we have the hell box <laughs> see that's like the instructor hq where they hang out they get they drink beer, they party, whatever they want to do, right? In the hell box. That's where they operate out of. Couple things I remember. One, flights. I remember flights, Frog Hill, mm -hmm. Al Huey, mm -hmm. Chow PTs, and the freaking cactus, man. Al Huey. Okay, that's what I was wondering. Al Huey was one of the Chow PTs where we would basically run from the chow hall or the barracks and it it was a long 
it, it was a longer hill. It went up past Frog Hill, and it was on the road, mm-hmm. and it went all the way up to like the airstrip yeah. up there on top. So it was just a longer run that we would do for Chow PT. But it was not near as brutal as Frog Hill. Frog Hill is... Tell the people about Frog Hill. Frog Hill was probably a quarter-mile hill, maybe about a 500-foot in elevation in that quarter-mile. <laughs> Straight and, up, uh, dude. One instance where we were doing a run before an O-course, and I fell back on the run and then crushed the O-course, and one of the instructors thought I was just gun-decking it. Again, it was just... The running just kicked my ass. It's yeah. just the bottom line. And... And then I crushed the O course. So naturally I was gun decking it, which I wasn't because I was puking my guts out. And he said, go back and do a chaplain. Now, for those of the, you have to understand a chaplain flights are, you have to, they set it up where every other day you had a time to run up frog Hill. If you met the time you had hot chow, if you didn't meet the time you ate an MRE wet and sandy at the table outside. Now, so every other day, I had warm meals because they were pull-up days, and I could crush pull-ups. I was a pole vaulter in high school. I mean, I could do pull-ups to my belly button. I mean, all, all day long, I could do pull-ups. Yeah. Tell me to run up Frog Hill? Not so much. So every other day, I was eating wet and sandy MREs. Mm-hmm. At least, actually, the first week, I was good, but then once the time started ticking down, yep. it became miserable for me. Yep. But he said, you know, go do a chaplain. Now the chaplain, mind you, one of the cla- each of the classes gets to give a gift to the instructors in the hell box. Yep. Unless it won't fit in the hell box. One of the gifts was a flight tower, a simulated flight tower that they put there in the compound where an instructor could get in there with a bullhorn and he could be the flight tower. Now, mind you, a flight tower, a flight is up to the top of the Frog Hill and back, and other lo- other locations to be determined depending on the flight tower, if the pattern was full. Okay. So the different objects that you had to take on flights, they had (laughs) the scullies of woe, two cement tripods with handles, but then they had eggs, dinosaur eggs that you would actually have to try to hold on to. So it's like, you know, the, you know, what, what are the, what do they call the stones that they put up on the yeah, those big atlas stones. Yeah, it was, yeah. Like, it was like a couple of atlas stones that you would actually have to carry this egg up the hill and back. So there's no real way to hold on to it. Uh, and he's calling this a hill. It's really a, a sandy cliff face right. that you're... Yes. Yeah. So the chaplain was a flight simulator dummy. that weighed about 175 pounds. That wasn't good enough. So the students cut his chest open and filled him full of lead and then taped him back up. And then they presented the chaplain to the instructors upon their exit. Mm -hmm. And the next class, if you screwed up and you had to do a chaplain flight, now, mind you, he's decked out in greens and a helmet. And I had to do the stupid chaplain. The thing weighed 210 pounds. Holy smokes, So I've got this stupid thing, fireman's carry up this hill, and I get him all the way up to the top of the hill. And I'm ready to turn around, and I'm dying. And his helmet falls off. So it's not like I want to put him down because picking him back up isn't going to happen real well. So I'm sitting there trying to do the mambo, trying to get his helmet and put it back on his head so that I could get him back down. And then by the time I get back down, the instructor's in the tower and I've got to request permission to land. Yep. And 
naturally the pattern was full and I was denied. And then the next thing I know, I do another circle around and request permission again. You are on fire. Hit the beach, put the flames out, translated, go get wet and sandy with the chaplain. (laughs) And then I got to circle back and come back and land and put the chaplain down. What a beautiful story of the (laughs) games we play on San Clemente Island. And all this is devised in the minds of the instructors, right? It's all devised. I mean, just unbelievable, man. Yeah, they had steel pallets. They had wood pallets. Those steel, dude, those steel pallets, just the way they dug into your back. Yep. Miserable. Um, Third phase was the first time I got to play with uh, the Night Stalkers. They actually, the, the, the um, Tier okay. 1 helicopter yes. yeah, unit, yeah. Okay. the Army unit, mm-hmm. they had some pilots that needed to get quals, so they flew their helicopters out to San Clemente Island, and we spent a day and a night with the Night Stalkers casting that was probably out, cool. out into the ocean. So the first helicopter ride I ever had was with a Tier 1 asset, Night Stalkers. These are the best helicopter pilots on Earth. And, dude, they're banking these things. I mean, they can fly these things like a roller coaster, man. Dudes are puking out the sides. They're just greens. And the pilots are doing it on purpose. Sure. Obviously, they could fly this thing just as smooth as butter if they wanted to. But I'm sure the instructor said, hey, man, fly this thing like you're in combat. And dudes were just just falling apart, man. (laughs) That's one thing. I think I have a picture of me and a, a couple of my close buddies uh, sitting in the side of one of those Blackhawks when the Night night Stalkers flew out there, man. Um, but that's one heck of a place. Uh, now, dive phase, where did you guys do, which would have been your third phase, right. my second phase, where did you guys do your dive phase at? We did it there in Coronado. Okay. So, I mean, it was back in Coronado. I mean, dive phase for me was great because at that time it was Master Chief McCullough and he was big on PT, and it was the first time people started getting chitted for not doing good pull-ups and push-ups and dips, which I could crush. Okay. So it was a happier phase for me, even though I was still running every Saturday. Mm-hmm. Some of the spoon-chested frogmen that couldn't do a push-up or a pull-up to save their life yeah. were finally having to pay the man the way I had paid the man for a lot of months. Mm, so yeah. it, was, it was refreshing to me to get to third phase. It's good to be good at push-ups. Because most of the push-ups you do in dive phase involve a set of twin eighty yeah. air tanks on your back. Sure. Yeah. So those things are freaking heavy and uncomfortable. Now, did, did you still have the double hose regulator for the? We did. Okay. We did, and that's what I was going to ask you. Pool comp. Pool so comp. for me, pool comp was one of, if not the hardest evolution that I had to get through in buds. I passed on my third try. You get three tries at pool comp. Pool comp can be a... It, it is... I'm going to let Chris explain pool comp here in just a minute. But essentially, it is the last place, the way BUDS is formatted now, you got first phase, then second phase. Pool comp is halfway through second phase. It's the last chance the instructors get to weed out the people they don't want to be there. Right? Because they can make it to where you don't pass pool comp. 
Sure. They have they have control. It, no, I. You have to do your job, right? You have right. to do things right, but they can make it hard enough that you won't pass. And I passed on my third try, and you want to talk about nerve-wracking, man. Everything that I had worked for, first phase, well, heart surgery, first phase, hell week, all this hinged on this one last chance to pass a single evolution. <laughs> Let's hear about your pool comp experience. See, pool comp for me was just, uh, I got an instructor that he and I just, you run into certain instructors you just don't click with. Yeah. And this instructor basically didn't click with anybody. I mean, I hate, I'll, I'll, I'll leave some of the products that he sold, but they were pyramid schemes. And he was always trying to loop students into his pyramid schemes. Okay. You know? But... In the process, what pool comp is, is that if you imagine the the lines on the bottom of the pool, at the deep end of the pool, because we still did it in the old pool, not the new uh, training tank at that time, Yep. they would set up two distances, and you would have all your scuba gear, and it was all the old Jacques Cousteau stuff, the two hoses that came out of the little regulator that you stuck in your mouth. The right-hand side was your intake, and the left-hand side was your exhale. You literally went along this line back and forth waiting for an instructor to simulate surf. Now, the first instance of being hit or taking surf, they would shake you up, rip your mask off, disorient you a little bit, and then your goal was to get everything back on. Once you got everything back on and started walking up and down the line again, they'd come down and then they'd do the next level hit, which is they would tick typically rip your regulator out of your mouth, rip your mask off, disorient you, twist it, maybe put a, a little knot in the in the hoses, typically on the exhalation side, to see how you would actually critically think while holding your breath if you happen to get some before they ripped everything out. And then what would end up happening is, is that you had had a very specific procedure to walk through and if you didn't walk through that, they're watching you now to see if you're going to go through the proper steps. And if you didn't, then that was a fail and you're out of the pool. Yep. The third time they hit you was a knot that you would actually have to take your tanks off, set them down after putting your weight belt across the back of your legs to hold you down. Yep. So that's where he said he got me and I failed my first try because he said I didn't do that in the right order. We disagreed because I did, but yeah. he said I didn't. That's what I'm talking about. So they can weed you out. I get the knot out, and I put everything, and he fails me because I didn't follow procedure. Well, then I get in with Chief Brown a couple hours later after everybody else has had a time to go through, and it's my second run through, and he's down there, and, I mean, we're on, like, whammy knot number five. Everything he's throwing at me, I'm getting out, mm -hmm. and I'm literally sucking on air bubbles, you know, between the gulps of water for, for a breath, choking and wheezing and everything else. And it was just, finally, he gives me my mask back, and I didn't know what that meant, so I just waved it off and beat his hand away because I was just like, I don't need a mask. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, and I'm just crawling this line with my squinty eyes in, in chlorine water, and then he tries to give me my mask back again. And I bat his hand away again. And he just finally, he just grabs me and pulls me up to the surface. And he goes, 
get out of here. He goes, I don't know why he failed you. And he just said, damn, you can hold your breath. <laughs> the, the whammy knot he gave me, I was down there for a good three, three and a half minutes trying, smokes, to, trying to get man. it undone. I wasn't, one of two things was going to happen. I was either getting it out yeah. or they were pumping water out of my chest up on the pool deck. Yeah. But I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't quitting and I wasn't waving off. Yep. Um, so that just wasn't part of the game plan. And so for the listeners, what Chris is telling you about right here, he keeps saying the whammy knot. What that is, is you don't know when the whammy knot's coming, but the whammy knot is essentially a knot that they tie in your air hose that you are not supposed to be able to get it undone, right? So you have to make that determination as the student because they might give you a knot in your air hose, but they expect you to be able to get that knot out, right? right? So there's a point in your mind where you have to say, this has got to be the whammy knot. I can't fix this thing. It's just beyond repair. At that point, you kiss the bottom of the pool deck and you FSA, free swimmer ascent. Well, you don't know until you get to the surface and that instructor says pass or fail. You don't know if you pass or fail or not because he, you might come to the surface and he might say, dude, you should have been able to get that out. Right. You fail. So he was giving you these whammy knots and you were working them out somehow. Right. And he was getting pissed off. He actually he was he was impressed. He was just like, I don't know how the hell you're doing that. <laughs> I have never heard a pool comp story like that, man. You know, he's just like, you know, finally he just said, Get out of here, you pass. Yeah. And and it just the whammy knots he was giving me, I was get, I was getting them out. Yeah. You know, and it just uh it was it, it was it was good to get past that. Oh, that yeah, big but time. That was, that was just, at that point, that was third phase. Yeah. After we had already been out to the island. So we'd already gotten all of that. Yeah. So, yeah. Now, um, back back when you were in, in the late 80s, late 80s, early 90s, was diving a big part of the job? Was it something that, that was focused on? I mean... Well, here's where it gets weird because okay. because of my dad, yeah, I had some insight into the people detailing people and they asked me where I wanted to go and I actually picked SDVs and it's because I grew up in and around SDVs mm -hmm. and my thinking and mentality at the time is that that's where I wanted to be. I wanted to be a frogman and uh, which was really cool because that's when SDV started getting out of the idea of just limpet mines yeah. and hydros and into SEAL ops. Yeah. We're one of the first SEAL groups to actually operate out of SDV Team 2 out of the back of the boat. What is SDV? SEAL, SEAL delivery. delivery Vehicle Team 2. Yeah. Okay. And they're basically a 22-foot wet submersible that you're in there and you're crammed in like literally sardines in a can and you may take several hours to be underwater from a submarine because you could leave Norfolk, Virginia, and you could go anywhere in the world, disembark off the submarine through the dry deck shelter. Three or four more hours, you exhaust certain a couple of rigs, and then they drop you off, and you take all your gear into the beach, cross the beach into the hinterland, and do what you got to do, whether it's black box ops or sniping mm -hmm. or just you know reconnaissance or INW um, operations or anything of that nature. Few days later, you come out, rendezvous with the mini sub again, back out to the submarine, and then uh, 
it's it, it, it's it's one of the it, it is one of the most specialized now it is one of the most complex and difficult duties that you can do in the seal teams i mean these guys the complexity of the missions that they do which by the way the missions that they do none of you will ever hear about as a matter of right. fact their need to know they're on they're they're on a need to know basis i didn't even hear about the missions that sdv was running when i was active duty with a top secret security clearance because they are that complex and that secret. They, they are able to go into places and conduct reconnaissance, conduct missions where nobody else can go. And like Chris said, I have heard horror stories of these ops. The amount of time that, that SDV guys spend underwater in this submarine in freezing cold environments and the amount of gear that they have to not only bring with them, but know how to use and use it very well. It is uh, that th that part of the SEAL teams gets overlooked by the general public. And it is the hard, it, it is, it's a good thing, but it is the hardest duty that you can have. How big are the, like the submarine things? They're about 22 feet long. Yeah. And how many people are in? I mean, you can put, we normally did, we had operations where we had seven because they wanted an officer up front, but the pilot and the navigator were E-dogs, but they were the best in the group, so they would put an officer behind them, somebody they could hang. Um, and you're in the... So you're cramped up in that thing. Yeah, but you're in the... Like, yeah. there, it's it's a, it's a open... You're not like in a dry submarine. Oh, okay. So you're, you're exposed to the water. Imagine you're... Your, your best bud's sitting between your legs and you're hugging him like a beach ball. And you sit like that for the better part of a lot of hours. I'm not going to get into how many, but a it's a lot. lot. It's, you know, I've exhausted multiple different rig systems going in and out doing combat swimmer ops in that process. So that's just a lot of hours that you can be hmm. in an SDV. And you're breathing off of a regulator. Cause you're you're in the water, right? This thing is basically just taking you where you need to go, but you're breathing off a regulator the whole time. So it's I mean it's like an underwater boat. It's not an encapsulated yeah exactly submarine oh, you're, you, thing. No, you're encapsulated. It's just a fiberglass door that pushes back and forth. Oh, okay, yeah. But you're you're in a tube that you fly and you fly it a lot like a helicopter. It's huh. got a stick and a yoke, and it's got a rudder, and it's got planes, and you literally fly through the water at a certain you know. Different speeds. I'm yeah. not going to get into that, but the idea is is that you fly it. The median you're flying in, it just happens to be water. Oh, mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, you know, some people hold flat and steady. I used to like just kind of coast between about 12 and 15 feet. Not a real porpoise, but just a little bit, kind of gradual. So, because holding that stick with a lot of rubber on, I mean, it's like your, your arm naturally wants to do this. Yeah. Yeah. And you're literally cranking it. To hold that stick and mm -hmm. gosh, dog, man. Now, so that was your first command. Yeah. SDV. Yep. How many did, years did you spend at SDV? Did three deployments to the med and five and a half years. I was gone four and a half of it. Wow, man. Now, coming out of SDV, did you, did you, where did you go after that? Because I'm wondering how much how that was integrating from SDV and being so focused on the water 
then to having to integrate back into a more land-based well, seal it, platoon? First, it was good because I went through sniper school and we had that sniper element. So that put me back into the, the ground world. Okay. But coming out of that platoon, I had the choice, either screen or development group, mm-hmm. like the rest of my platoon was doing, or take some time, go to school on shore duty, and open up my options. Yep. So I opted to go to shore duty and open up my options. Okay. Because married, at that time, it was a one-and-a-half-year-old. So opted to go up to Office of Naval Intelligence and work out of the Sabre uh, shop there, basically collecting and collating all kinds of intel that would be really good for guys in a platoon to have. Yeah. That's when Bosnia was kicking off. So okay. I became a Bosnia expert. I was going to all the three-letter alphabets and rating desks and everything else. That's before everything was so online. Yeah. And getting it down and briefing people on what they were going to be heading into and giving people insights into the information that they needed. Um, just some really, really cool stuff that I was actually able to do up from that command. Yeah. Went to night school, one of the first kind of online programs. It was a telephone and a TV set. Got a degree in information systems management because that's what the command was willing to pay for. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't have to use my GI Bill at that time. But uh, made chief up there at nine years. Um, chose to actually go through the initiation process up there with the folks that helped me make chief. I mean, I made it by one win problem as an OS. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, the- yeah, because you were having to take the OS yeah. rating yes. for your rating exams. Right. Wow, man. So... What, but what ended up happening up there is that between school, 60 hours a week at work, still in love with the teams, made chief, mama and daughter were probably like number four or five on the, yeah. on the list. And uh, I came home to a note one night that said, you ever come home this late again, we won't be here. Mm. So old scuba boy had a decision to make when he was looking in the mirror. Are you the man that your daughter deserves in the future are you the husband that your wife deserves and it was at that time it was an absolute no now mind you she was going through her own throes and difficulties i watched her get baptized and give her heart to the lord Mm -hmm. which was just phenomenal and then a couple months later after that february of 98 i gave my heart to the lord but it was in talking to what was going to happen if i'd gone back to the teams at that point in time getting a platoon either as a chief or as an ensign, gone 10 months out of the year, my marriage wasn't going to make it. Yeah. So I opted to go ahead and jump in the reserves at that time and become a government contractor. Mm -hmm. And it was because I fell in love with my family and elevated my family above the teams at that time. Mm -hmm. And I knew that once I did that, I had a different focus. Yep. Um, Not that people that stay in the teams for years and years and years aren't, but my wife and I just celebrated 30 years Tuesday night, what, the 15th? Amazing, so, man. So the idea is, is that that's when, I, that's when I stepped out of the Navy and into the SEAL Reserves yeah. for about five years. Now, I want to I, I explain what, uh, my perspective of what, of what Chris is saying right here. When you are in a SEAL platoon, like when Chris was in his SDV platoon, when I was in a platoon at SEAL Team 8, you have to focus every ounce of, of your mental and emotional uh, capacity on doing that job. If you don't, you or someone else will be injured or die. Right. Period. 
right? So what happens is, is you have to put these blinders on. And everyone around you, your wife, your children, your, your, uh, your family members, your friends, people that matter to you, they are going through emotional conflict and they are, ha- they are having to live life and they are having problems that you have to basically block any of their problems out. Sure. Like you, you don't, you can't, you can't engage in any emotional conflict with them. That's why I think a lot of people can't understand my first probably four to five years of marriage. My wife was in active addiction. Well, people say how, and and I didn't really know it. I, I didn't know that she was that that she was struggling with that, like literally to the point of nearly overdosing and and passing away and people say how is that possible what's because when when i would come home for a day or two well if i noticed that something was a little off i'm not going to engage in a conversation trying to figure out what is wrong because i didn't have the capacity for that because i knew i was leaving again in another day or two so i wasn't going to have that conversation so if you notice something's a little off you just say man I hope they hope they're able to hang on, but I got to go back and do this job. And well, I mean, but even even in town though, as an LPO or a chief, I was in before the O's and left after the O's because I was the go between between the leadership and the pipe hitters. Yeah, and I wanted to make sure you know. I mean, I had a couple of guys say, "You spend all the time in the office," because I didn't have a chief when I was at the SDV platoon. I was the chief as an LPO. Mm. So I was in a real pickle and I had a couple other first classes kind of say, Oh yeah, you're, you're always in the office. And I go, all right, I had it. You got it. What do you mean? You're the LPO go. Mm. I'll take, I'll, I'll take, you know, Mar ops in a heartbeat, fix boats and motors out here on the back 40. Nobody bu- busting my chops. All right. We'll I love Mar ops. A, a day later I had a guy screaming at me. He was just like, you know, it was Nicky Baggett. I'll, I'll out him. If he ever hears this, he's just like, you go, I can't take him. He's an idiot. I don't want to deal with him. You know? And I was just like, Nope, two weeks, buddy. You wanted to hammer me about where I spend my time, not realizing that I'm taking care of all you and I'm a buffer. <laughs> you go. Yeah, man. No, man. Yep. Two weeks. I made him do all two weeks. Yeah. And he was just like, I got it, Chris. I understand. Yep. Somebody has to be there or it all falls apart. <laughs> so it's yeah. just like, so even when you're in town, you're not home. Exactly. And I knew going back to a platoon as an ensign or a chief that mm-hmm. even if I was home, I wasn't going to be home. Mm-hmm. As the new O or as the chief, I was going to be trying to take care of the guys. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to uh, why, did, why did you decide to serve Jesus? Why did you decide to, to uh, respond to what he offers to us in 98? You said? Yeah. Yeah, because that's a... It really, I mean, after watching what my wife went through, getting baptized and giving her heart to the Lord, mm-hmm. and it really was a conversation with the guy in the mirror. Are you the man she deserves? And are you the man that you would want your daughter to marry? Mm-hmm. And the answer to both of those at that time was no. And then the next thing was, then what are you going to do about it? And then that's when it clicked. Gotcha. And it been a work in progress ever since. Gotcha. So when you leave active duty to go to the reserves, what a and also what a testament, what a beautiful uh, lesson that we can learn here. There are going to be points in your life 
I promise you, if if you go hard enough, if you want to achieve, if you want to do something, do a, an intensive job like we're talking about doing, if you're one of those people, an entrepreneur or whatever, there are going to be times in your life where you are going to have to decide which direction you're going to go. Are you going to go and be the man that you should be or the, the wife that you should be or the person that you should be to the people that love you, the people that are going to be there for you for the rest of your life, or are you going to keep your head down on, on this track, on this career path, on this job, whatever it is? That's a hard decision to make, man. I'll never forget walking into my command master chief's office when, I, when my wife was ready to go to rehab walking into my command master chief's office and saying, Hey, I can't, I can't deploy. Like I had, I had to make this, that decision also and to say, okay, what am I going to choose here? Am I going to choose my wife? And am I going to take, take a knee and walk with her through this process? That's going to be very difficult. Or am I just going to say, you know what? I've got too much invested in this job. I'm I'm going to, I'm going to redeploy. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. That's a hard freaking decision to make. But let me tell you, I wouldn't change a thing about it. Well, I talk to leaders. I talk to people that are in those kind of boats now. And a lot of people that are kind of in that point in their life and they're kind of thinking about these things. And I have to, I ask them, I go, so how do you define success? Yeah. And then they define success. And it's always about them. Mm. And then I go, how do you define significance? And they're like, what do you mean? I go, how would you define significance? Because significance is about others and success is about you. So how would you define significance? You see, you can be successful in the pursuit of significance, Mm -hmm. but you can't be significant in the pursuit of success because success is all about you significance is all about others others yeah so when you get people kind of thinking in that zone it really kind of clears the lanes for them to kind of put it into the proper perspective wow man Mm. and that's not to say that people are right wrong or indifferent about the decisions that they make they make the decision they make the best decision for them in the moment Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there's there's no no judgment Mm -hmm. on that but know that there are consequences to our decisions and they not they may not be the one those people might not be there for us on the other side if we keep choosing ourselves versus choosing others. Yep. Yep. I love that, brother. So you you leave active duty to go on the reserves mm-hmm. and you're doing your contracting. Got recruited to take our 96-hour mission planning cycle and put it into software with Cowboy Wells and turn it into a 96-minute cycle where people could actually basically wire all the computers together and plan at the same time. Okay. The Sompy system. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you had a couple of those cases that oh, nobody yeah. liked and because they were heavy and you just moved them around a lot. Yep. <laughs> yep. But when you needed a plan, it was nice to have that stuff on hand. Everything there, yep. So that you could actually really do things well. But got recruited to do that. So I was doing that in Little Creek, and then my employer pulled me out to San Diego and then at that time, Mark Mione pulled me in full-time underneath him as part of the contract. Gotcha. And then got mobbed back to active duty in 2005 when they ran out of uh, officers. A lot of people don't understand that about 42% of spec 
workforce was reserved throughout the conflict. They don't know that there's that many reservists were coming mm-hmm. in and augmenting the team so that they could go out and do the voodoo that they needed to do. Yeah. There's a big tail that comes with trying to put people on target quickly. Yeah. Smart. Um, and that's. So where were you, uh, where were you at when, when 9-11 went down? I was on the watch floor of the mission support center there in Coronado watching the towers get hit. And I had a, a lieutenant commander, I go, this ain't over. And he's like, quit stirring everybody up. And then about that time, the second plane hit the second tower. Mm. And I, I kind of looked at him and I went, I go, it ain't over. And about that time, the other one went down in the field and, uh, or actually the next one, I think went down in, into the uh, Pentagon. Pentagon. Yeah. I go, this ain't over. And he's, you know, and he's just looking at me like, how do you, I was like, we're under attack. This, mm-hmm. Planes don't do that. Yeah. And uh, then the other one went in the field, and then they just shut down the entire air grid. Was there a was there a shift in was there a shift in energy or dynamic or or whatever you want to call it? Was there a distinct shift after that happened and the conflict started, the war started? I like. I, I think there was purpose. Okay. I think people people really realized what they did mattered. You yeah. could you could train, you could be good. And and a lot of people still pursued excellence and their best. But when you have a described enemy, yeah, to pursue, to hunt. That changed that changed the dynamic. That's a lot, right. I think I, I've I you know I look at as I look or at least think back on you know the SEAL teams in the nineties eighties nineties. Um, I think you know those guys trained so hard. I mean they were they were solid team guys, solid SEALs. But man, it would have been it would it's a testament to that generation of SEALs because it would have been tough knowing that you were training that hard, but you weren't going to war. Like that, it, that it was, it was always prep. Yeah. It would have ready. Yeah. To sustain. I mean, that, that was sustained for a decade in the teams. They had to be ready for whatever happened, but there was nothing there for them to look forward to. There was no opportunity there. There were opportunities, but they were you had to be in the right place at the right time Guys to be would there. Guys try to chase conflicts and it yeah. didn't work out so well. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, man. That would be tough. And and I remember, you know, when we would go through through ULTs, uh, because I, I got in the teams uh, 2007, and you know, we knew, we knew that we better take training seriously. Sure. Because we knew where we were going, we knew who the enemy was. Um, that was all clearly defined. So it did, it did make training different. I, I think than it probably was for for those guys. And I, I don't know. It's just uh, that would have been an interesting time to be in. And when you got recalled back to active duty, what did you? What did you go into? What did you, what were you doing when they recalled you? When I jumped out of active duty, I picked up a commission in the reserves. 
because I had the degree. So that's where you went from chief. Now you're an officer. Now I'm an officer in Ensign. And by the time I got mobbed, I was an 03. Now what okay. I had just done is help SOCOM rewrite their handheld UAV program. Mm. And I was writing the one for Spec War or in the process of facilitating that. And now we were trying to do some weird stuff with it. You know, we took a, a, a digital camera and hot wired the, the button so that when you hit the button, it just started taking off and taking pictures. Mm-hmm. And then you could throw it, put it up in the air and do racetracks and create your own imagery that you then brought into the mission planning software and you would geo-orient each of the pixels so that you had imagery right now. Current imagery, yeah. Current imagery right now. And for listeners, UAV is an unmanned aerial vehicle. The size of a large model airplane is what it was. Yeah. So we were doing all kinds of stuff like that with it. So I'm thinking recalled. I'm going to the show. I'm going to hunt bad guys with UAVs and put bombs on target. Yeah. And I walked into CB's office out there at Ops in uh, at Group One, and he's just like, "I got a job for you," and I was like, "Yeah, I'm I'm gonna go hunt bad guys with UAVs. What platoon you put me in?" And he's like, "Yeah, that's not what I'm gonna have you do." Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Yeah, it is." And he's like, "No, I'm gonna have you be the officer in charge of the Mission Support Center." And I'm like, "CB, you're gonna mobilize me to keep me in San Diego?" No, I'm going to go hunt bad guys with UAVs. And yeah. he's like, no, I got a job for you, and I need you to do this job. Yeah. And I was like, I don't want to do that job. He goes, you're going to do that job. Yes, sir. That's basically what it got to. Yeah. Now, mind you, the Mission Support Center was about 55 people, about a $5 million budget, responsible for time-critical, time-sensitive information, whether it was uh, – tracking devices or weather or imagery that's been annotated and supplying it to the white side of special forces in a way that they could be time responsive to time critical targets Mm. as informed as possible. It's a complex job, man. The officer in charge that just retired was an 05. He had five Oh sixes as his battle watch captains. So now I'm an 03, and I'm their boss at the Mission Support Center. So it was a little awkward walking up to an 06 and telling him that he was late for his watch. Yeah. But that was part of my role in that position. Yeah. But we had guys thanking us for some of the stuff that we did. They're like, yeah, I got off the helicopter and looked up, and the clothesline was exactly where you said it was going to be. Wow, man. So it was that kind of detail that would be beneficial to operators Mm -hmm. so that they could plan the best routes in. Being able to tell them that's not the house. This is the house, and here's why. Yep. I know what I, I know what your intel is saying. Yeah. But we've got this that says it's this house. Trust us, it's this house for these reasons. Wow, man. So we, I mean, we had top-notch imagery analysts, weather people. I mean, just people that were were solid. Mm-hmm. But in doing that, my CEO at time, Roger Meek, basically said, "Hey." Have you ever thought about coming back to active duty? And I was like, can I? And he's like, yeah, you can come back, you know, on active duty as full-time support FTS officer. Two years active and then two years working with the reserves, prepping the reserves to go on to active duty. All right, well, let me talk to my girls, my wife and daughter, and see if that's not an option. Because I wasn't going to do something that was going to impact the family. Family's number two, number two value. Um, and so I, my wife is like, hey, 
you loved being in the teams. We're in a good place now. We've got a great church family. Why not? Let's do this. Now, she said that not knowing that I was about to head on an eight-and-a-half-month deployment to the Philippines. But that's what ended up happening. Oh, man. because That's we, a long deployment, man. We uh, went over there with the idea that we were going to be the buffer between platoons so that the intel didn't dip. Because I had the uh, special reconnaissance, reconnaissance guys and the INW and the CTs. So we went over there to do that there. But I kept asking about strategic lift. Because usually we piggyback the platoon strategic lift to get over there. I was mm-hmm. like, has anybody paid for the strategic lift to get us back? And, uh, yeah, no, they they, they didn't. <laughs> you know, this brings up a good point. This Let me tell you how this... Y'all might think being in the SEAL teams that like everything is just planned out for you and, and you're going to fly into this uh, whatever place on a deployment and everything's just set up and you're going to have your, your ride home is all scheduled and all that. No, that ain't the way it works. No. Like I remember, I remember touching down in Djibouti and being stuck there for three, four weeks, I think, because we didn't know how to get back. We had to find a ride from Djibouti, Africa, back to the United States. We literally had to beg, borrow, and steal to get a ride back to the United States. Yeah. This is the kind of crap you... This is the kind of problems that you're solving. Yes. You couldn't just get an Uber? No. Like, <laughs> And there's no... It's not like you can just buy a commercial airplane ticket to fly from Djibouti back to the States. It's like... You got all your gear. With your guns yeah. and yeah. everything. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that's basically what happened is, is it so one platoon left, new platoon came in, we covered the gap, Intel didn't drop, but then because the strategic lift was so expensive and nobody put that in the budget, oh, we'll just extend you. <laughs> so we got to live out half of one platoon's deployment and all of the next platoon's oh deployment. Oh my gosh, man. So it was just, it was, con- and, and I saw it coming. I was like, I told my wife before I left, I was like, Five and a half months, best case. And she kind of looked at me and she goes, what's worst case? And I went, we come back with the platoon. She yeah. goes, when's that? I go, I don't know. And she's just like, seriously? Yep. Like, yeah, seriously. That That is that is and the life. That's yeah. the life, man. It, it's how it is. It, we, we were on a four-month deployment rotation at SEAL Team 8. We were the first ones to kind of start that. We were modeling the deployment rotation of uh, uh, the other organization up the road so we were on four month cycles four month deployments and if they told you it was a four month deployment it was going to be a five and a half or six month deployment for sure. every time man um well you finally made it home yeah what'd you get into after that went back to the uh reserve side of the house okay and then uh basically i was trying to homestead in san diego so I was trying to take all the jobs that people didn't want. Yeah. In San Diego. Because you guys had your church family church established family. there. My, my daughter was in was in high school. I wanted a homestead for yeah. my family so that they were stable. Didn't mean I wasn't jumping around to different jobs. Yeah. Staying at the same command. Mm-hmm. Or trying to take a short command and not deploy. So what ended up happening is I found a opening at advanced training command. And took that option to be ops down there at the because I got the platoon commander by doing the PI deployment, mm-hmm. which was a gift from my CO at that point in time. 
the next CEO wasn't so enamored by me taking that job down at ATC because he wanted me to leave California and go do something else. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, my family's my number two value, so I'm going I'm yeah. to go this route. You said if I could find a job here in San Diego that's a hard fill, I could fill it. And I found one. But he had been in a situation at that time where he was doing one of the boards and couldn't get to his phone. So him not looking at his email was my fault. When the detailer said, yep, Chris is a go for these orders and cut the orders. <laughs> so I went down to Advanced Training Command and took the ops boss down there. And basically, I mean, that's 350 some odd people. That had to Six be a fun graphic. Oh, yeah, that had to be a fun place to be, man. And it was Advanced Training Command. At least this is how it was on the East Coast. Um, Advanced Training Command ran all the sniper school. They mm -hmm. ran breacher school. They ran all the very specific skill sets. They were ours. Okay. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So uh, that's that. You have to be. You have to be an experienced operator to even be an instructor. At Advanced Training Command, because you are teaching really crucial, high-level, specific skill sets. That are high-risk evolutions. High, high-risk. You know, I mean, coincidentally, a lot of the breacher instructors have challenges with TBI and some of the other things that we've had to learn the hard way. Yep. About what being near too many concussive events really does to us. And, you know, no different than being out at sniper school or anywhere else, you know? So it was really trying to craft and figure out ways to make those schools better. Better, yeah. Um, one of the dreams I had there, being a uh, prior sniper, was that we shift sniper school from Indiana down to Mississippi, and we create literally 18 holes of sniperdom. And each hole is a different environment, a different setup, whole nine yards and you just go down there and you just because there's so much land down there that you could actually yeah you could build it yeah you could build it like you would build a golf course dude that would have been sweet man didn't quite happen while i was there they were still fighting on keeping it in indiana we wanted to create a we want them to homestead in indiana mm -hmm. you know the challenge is that some of the instructors liked the lifestyle they had in indiana because it was different than the lifestyle they had at home yeah you know so there was yeah. a lot of Pushback yeah. push on that, but we wanted to set it up where you could have your head on your own pillow most nights uh -huh. as an instructor in sniper school. Yeah. So you could two or a three-year stint sniper school in Indiana with your family. Yeah. Good school system. Yeah. Housing was affordable. The idea was to, a quality of life for a family, mm -hmm. not necessarily the bachelor mm -hmm. or the married man acting like a bachelor. Yeah, man. You know, I... <clears throat> A lot of pushback. It, it, on that. it really it brings up so many old memories for me of of yeah you would think that would make sense you guys listen to this podcast that the instructor the sniper instructors would want to be able to move their families out um, to the training location so that they could be there you know for a two year or three year stint as an instructor but really man that life and that culture is just you you can't even understand it I mean there, guys were. Guys had two different lives. Yeah. Just like Chris said. And by no means am I like putting I'm not put, judging. putting down my teammates or judging, but it, it's it's a it is a weird, weird environment. If have you guys ever seen the the movie Apocalypse Now? How it's just it's just weird. 
Yeah. It's, it's not like real life. Just weird people just... That's how it was in the SEAL teams. It was almost like you were halfway at times living in a dream. Like, yeah. what? Hold on just a minute. It don't make no sense, but somehow it, it works. Yeah. Somehow it works, man. Yeah. But, dude, that is awesome. And then how did you... Um, well, I went from there to I saw my name on a short list. Basically, being at ATC, looking at the deployment cycles and how fast officers were deploying, yeah. I knew I was either on a short list for a night joint operations center Jock chief, <laughs> which mm-hmm. I didn't want to do because I'd already run the mission support center. So been there, done that. But then they had this, uh, team two had a hard fill that they couldn't fill. And it was a diplomatic mission to uh, Pakistan. And I was like, I'll take that. That's different. Never done that before. And it was all about training the Pakistanis in special ops and yeah. ca- counter narco uh, missions and things of that nature. And uh, it was all about it. This is January, mind you. Can't get my visa through. May happens. Well, that's when we dispatched Mr. Bin Laden. Mm-hmm. When we invaded their country. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my visa gets approved. Now, mind you, I had to give the Pakistani CIA 10 years of my detailed life to get my visa to get into the country. So they knew everything about me. Yeah. I then deployed to Pakistan in June. And I mean, on a daily basis, we didn't know if the guns were in or out. And then that's also the year that the helicopter went down with our brothers and took so many out all at once. Extortion. Yep. Yep. The interesting thing about that is, is that the day before that went down, I told my wife, hey, I'm going off the grid, which meant I'm going to be traveling. I'm not going to be in comms. Yeah. Well, I didn't know it went down when it went down where I was at. So I call her three days later and, you know, she sat there in front of, you know, the, uh, it wasn't zoom. Then it was one of the, one of the other first video Skype or it was something. Skype. Yeah. You know, she was waiting for the Skype yeah. tune to kick off. Um, she didn't know if she was getting a black car to the door, a mm. chaplain at the door. All she was seeing is, is that, you know, Dude. so many guys just, yeah, so it... I, I couldn't imagine it, how that conversation went. Yeah, I mean, she was just in tears. She just oh, I bet. didn't... I mean, she didn't know. Nobody was talking or telling anybody, and... Yeah. So when I finally communicated, it was uh, it was a... <laughs> it was rough. I was like, dang, dear, I, I, I honestly didn't know. Yeah. Um, what What were the Pakistanis like? Were they, were they hungry to train or learn, or were they... I mean... Some of them were, <coughs> some of them were, but I was frustrated by the fact that for them and their belief system, lying to a, a white person mm-hmm. who doesn't believe in Allah was okay. Mm. And I struggled with that because, I mean, we taught them a lot of good stuff down there on the, the coast. Mainly we taught them a lot of medical stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, Ron Carpenter, Warrant Officer Ron Carpenter was who I was with at the time and Nikki Baggett. Yep. And uh, we were there basically doing a lot of other things and reinforcing intel packages and things of that nature down there on the coast. Yep. But we were also trying to train them, help them utilize their boats better because they would only do daytime ops. Mm-hmm. So as soon as the boat went out, guy in a man dress got on the phone, called it in, 
when they came back in, the guy in the man dress would call it in, and then they'd start running their counter-narco ops. Yep. Now, terrorists are going to follow the same networks. Yep. Once we train them how to take care of themselves if they got hurt, they would go out and do two- and three-day ops. And right after we left, that's when they had one of their biggest heroin busts they had ever had because they left port and didn't come back. And they started trying to run their ops on their schedule, mm-hmm. and they were able to bust them. So it was... uh it was different because we didn't know if the guns were in or out on a daily basis from the Pakistani side. Oh, I bet. A couple man. of our groups got harassed at some of the checkpoints. Yeah. We had a Benghazi situation long before Benghazi happened. Mm-hmm. We had 3,000 people on our wall that were just pissed off at Americans that day. Yeah. Down in the consulate in Karachi, Pakistan. We are locked and loaded on the rooftops. I created a no comms grid using numbers and letters and colors so that we could talk in the clear about where people were at. And uh, it was just, a, it was, it was bizarre. I mean, we we're watching people climb up on a barbed wire fence. And, you know, my attitude was, is dude gets over the fence. He's, he's committed. Yeah. But I had law enforcement tell me part of the diplomatic team. Yeah. Say, no, you can't shoot him unless he shows aggression. I go, him getting over that barbed wire fence is plenty enough aggression for me. That's such a tough situation to and, be in, man. Yeah. You know, they basically, they, you know, we didn't know where we were just going to get flooded. Because a lot of people don't understand the Marines aren't there to protect the people. A lot of people think they are, but they're mm-hmm. not. They're there to protect the consulate and the classified. Yeah. That's their role is to make sure that the classified doesn't fall into the wrong hands. Yeah. Then they can start talking about protecting the people. Mm-hmm. But it's really about protecting the consulate or the embassy itself. Yep. And and not to mention there there aren't a at least the embassies and consulates I've been to, there's not a large marine no, it presence. No, it wasn't. It's it was very small. It, that that's a I, I could so relate to that. I, I was in Tunisia when the Tunisian embassy was attacked simultaneously with Benghazi. And um it's uh it's nerve wracking trying to do the job you're, you know how to do, but anytime the State Department is involved in anything, literally the head of security for the State Department at the embassy in Tunis, Tunisia, was a former school teacher. And ultimately, he's in charge. He, he's, I, I have to listen to this guy. Like if, if somebody comes over the wall, like Chris is talking about, and I smoke that dude, like you should. Like I should. They can prosecute me. Right. And so working with them and also working with the Secret Service was the most nerve-wracking part of my career because of that. Because, dude, we're we're we are a direct action unit. And here we're we're in we all of a sudden find ourselves in charge of the defense of this embassy, and the State Department heads are scared to death and they want you to save their lives. Right. But they don't want to let you kill anybody. And you're like, well, what the heck, man? The, uh, the, the lead security guy listened to me because they had so many bottlenecks about how people were getting into the consulate there in Karachi. Oh, my gosh, yeah. It was just a kidnapping waiting to happen. Yeah. Now, we had rumor that they were going to plan a car bomb followed by a dump truck bomb into the, embassy, into the consulate. And so, again, we locked and loaded and prepped for that. But the preparations that we helped them do to make ourselves a more hardened target, they put those 10-foot jersey barriers up. They created 
controlled mechanisms to get people in and out of the space safely. Yeah. Multiple lanes so that you couldn't, it would, it'd be a bit, we were a much harder target than another target that actually took the bomb because of how we worked with the security mm-hmm. there. And they actually paid attention to what we were saying. Yeah. Because we were harder, we didn't get it. The police chief's wife and kids got it mm. instead. Yeah. But, it, I mean, it was just, when I got there, we were one wall, not three. Yeah. You know, and all the entrances were bottleneck button hooks coming back to the entrance. So you literally had to stop and do a U-turn in a shanty town. I mean, it was just a disaster <laughs> waiting to happen. Yeah, man. And, you know, so we worked with him pretty closely to kind of help. And he listened. Mm-hmm. He was all about listening. You know, he had a security background, but he was willing to listen and take on information. That's good. And he got the resources to help harden that facility so that it was a better, I couldn't, better situation. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't believe it. It was so it was so astounding to me how exposed these facilities were. Yeah. In 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 an buildings right next door, looking down at you, a hundred percent, man. <laughs> and, and like in environment where there are obviously people that that want to kill Americans, yeah. and it, they're just they're just exposed with very little defenses. They don't. I mean, they don't even know where their their pe- the the State Department people are living out in town. They don't know where all their people are. They try to recall them, and they don't know who's living where, and they don't have somebody's phone. It's, it yeah. was a disaster, man. Right. Um, that's a testament to our government. <laughs> that's a testament to the the organization uh, that exists within the well, bureaucracies just, of the United States. We had one State Department person was upset because they weren't going to go have dinner that evening because oh yeah they they basically shut down the consulate and locked everybody in and weren't letting anybody come in or out because of that information that we had received yeah you know and we had high confidence that it was accurate so it was but i i I just looked at the guy i go did you not hear what was just told to you that Somebody actually wants to drive a dump truck into this place and kill most of us. Just doesn't click but, with them. But you want to go out to dinner anyway. To you're upset because you're not going to get to go to your your dinner tonight. Am I hearing that correctly? It's well, wild. You, you don't have to be that way about it. I go. <laughs> I'm not. I'm just trying to figure this out because it doesn't really sound too smart to me. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I just had I had some emotional intelligence training before going to. That job, it would have been a lot better. Yeah. I'd have been able to understand, because my pragmatic bluntness, it didn't go over too well as a team guy there, because we had all the resources and they wanted to use them, but they had all the connections that we wanted to use. It was a really hard relationship Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to get the things that we we desired. You know, when the military's there, diplomacy has pretty much failed. Yeah. You know, and, and, and people forget that part. It's like, well, if your diplomacy was working so well, I wouldn't be here. That's right. You know, so yeah. let's be honest. I've got money and I've got resources and you've got connections. Let's get together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. I love it, man. Yeah, I can really relate to that that mission and that experience, I think. Um, and these are things that I think the public, well, these things never make the news. These things never, people don't understand the dynamic, the dynamic mission that the SEAL teams have covered down on it hasn't just been Iraq and Afghanistan. No. There has been stuff going on 
all over the world. Countries? Yeah. On average? For the last two a decades. Running average. Exactly. And, you know, it, it was it was a, a dynamic lifestyle, dynamic mission. You never knew where, where you were going. And um, Well, when I tell people I went to the Philippines for eight and a half months, they're like, why'd you go there? And I was like, well, a lot of people don't know that most of the terrorists that went into the towers were trained in the islands, the southern islands of the Philippines. Yep. Yep. And they're like, really? I was like, yeah, that's where they learned a lot of their techniques and tactics and, and processes. Yep. And bomb making and everything else. Yeah, it's a massive network, man. Now, when you got off that depo- deployment, Chris, you got back home. Um, is that when you had your, your neck injury? Well, actually, I was made what I thought was a deal with the same guy that I took the job down at ATC because he was running the uh, the officer's career destinations, and I was promised a particular XO position inside FTS. And when I got back, it was given to somebody else. Mm. A new one popped up at the center for seal and swick where I was working for captain Wazotsky there at the center. So I took that one again to Homestead, Mm -hmm. um, brand new FTS position to give us another XO position for people to grow into. Um, I think we had about 60 people there between civilians and military and contractors. And, uh, while I was there working out, slipped a disc. This is about the third time I've slipped a disc, and then the doc finally said, he's like, yeah, it's time to go in and clean you up. Mm. And it was just a lot of years, road hard, put away wet is what, yeah. what it really was. You know, the frustrating part it was is it wasn't a dynamic injury, mm-hmm. so it didn't necessarily get the same cred or attention that somebody getting blown up or shot does in combat. Now, like I said, you know, I was mentioning to you earlier, the initial surgery was only supposed to be three and a half hours. They're going to go in, clean some things up. No big deal. I'd still be able to jump and do everything I needed to do. In fact, it was a parachute jump that made me numb for three days that made me go in and get looked at again, yeah. get another MRI. Those, dude, I think that's another thing people don't understand how violent a parachute jump is, even a free fall, uh, especially static line, but even a free fall, man, when you open that chute, there is evidence that a hard opening actually gives you a minor concussion. Yes. That's how hard it jolts your body. People are talking about, Chris just said, be, years of being road hard and put up wet. These are the little things. Hundreds of these parachute openings, hundreds of falls, hundreds of hours of running, working out, carrying heavy gear, wearing kit. This is what he's talking about, man. It's it's just the wear and tear is unbelievable. Well, my spinal surgeon, he was trained up in Stanford, and he was the department chair at Balboa. And he said, Chris, you basically put about eight or nine lifetimes on your spine. Spine's wow, designed man. to last about 37 years, mm. and we stretch it out much farther than that. But team guys notoriously put a lot of wear and tear on their spine. Now, mind you, he went in, and they discovered... Basically, the day of the surgery, they were doing, they were cycling power to auxiliary, so he couldn't open me up. So he brought in an X-ray machine and was just taking extra shots and discovered that the anterior ligament had calcified into my spinal cord. So what ended up happening between three and four, they had to open up a big enough gap that they could get the Dremel tool in there and Dremel the anterior ligament because they went in from the front. They just 
fish hooked everything off to the side mm-hmm. to get to my spine. And then they went in and dre- they opened it up, dremeled everything out to decompress the spinal cord, put in some dead guy's bone, and then put in a plate and four screws at 3-4. Then he moved down to 5-6 and replaced that disc with an artificial titanium disc, which was new at the time. They weren't doing a lot of those. So I've got an artificial disc in between those two. At 6-7, they went in and did a stem cell sponge for the fusion and then put a titanium sleeve over the top of it to create the fusion. Now, in the healing of that, my body thought it was weak. Mm-hmm. So what ended up happening is the posterior ligament calcified in four key spots into the cord. Mm. So he want, at first he was going to do a full laminectomy where they go in and fuse everything, put in an erector set from C2 down to, you know, what would that be, T1. He said, but Chris, you're too active. You're going to wreck my work. Because you would have been stuck. You, I, yeah. You'd be just locked up and yeah. like Fra- Frankenstein. Yeah. You turn your whole body to look. He said, if we do a skip laminectomy, it's a new surgery out of Japan. I'd like to try it on you. And I'm like, have you ever done it before? He's like, no, nah, but I got this. I was like, all right, doc. That's convincing. So he basically, he goes in and he, he goes, worst case, we'll have to go back in and put in the laminectomy. Yeah. Best case, you'll have lateral movement. Now, I can't move my head. If you were to take your ear and try to touch your shoulder, I can't move my head at all in either one of those directions. Okay. But I can turn left and right, so I can still hunt in a tree stand, which yep. is great for me. Yep. But, so he went in and removed the center of C3, which gave him access up under two, all of three, up under C4. Now, this is the posterior side now. And then he skipped over C4 and removed the center of C5. So I'm missing vertebrae at this point. Gave him access up under four, all of five, and then under six. The process of healing from all of that, they don't tell you. It's like one day I was at work and I'm sitting there typing. I can't type my name. I can't spell. I can't do a lot of things. So I just go and tell my supervisor, Brad Voigt. I'm like, hey, Brad, I'm, I'm going to go home. I don't feel good. And he's like, well, what's wrong? I go, well, I just don't feel good. He goes, if you don't tell me what's wrong, I'm not going to let you go. And I go, I don't know your name. I don't know anybody's name out there in the office. Wow, man. And he's like, Hmm. how about you go to Balboa? Yeah. So this is episode two. I'm in emergency and pastor came because put out the all call. I told my wife and she's like, she put out the message to our church family and pastor's in there. And he's talking to the lady at the front desk. She goes, he's fine. We'll get back to you in a minute. Have a seat, sir. You know, you know, he's in bed 19. And then as he sits down, stroke protocol, bed 19. Like they're going to run me through the gambit of Mm. the stroke protocol. And he kind of looks at her and she goes, somebody will be right out to speak to you. So the chaplain comes out to speak to him. Now, mind you, my wife's been in the Navy now for 25 plus years. Yeah. So with me throughout this process. Yeah. She comes through the double doors and she sees him talking to the chaplain. She thinks it's no, no big bueno. scare. Yeah. <laughs> so she's just like, she collapses and is in tears. No, 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 no. He's fine. He's fine. But it was going into that healing for about nine months. My lower back went out. So when they did post-op for my back of my neck, I had them review my lower spine. And the doc comes out for my post-op and he goes, your neck is doing great but yeah yeah he goes let's talk 
I was like, okay, here we go. So we go to his office now. He had a Bible on his desk, and I we used to talk scriptures all the time and all of that. So it was comical because he's like, I can put unfit for duty in my recommendation. Yeah. Or I can leave it out and you can go back to a platoon. But there's this, there are those conversations where you're hearing something that isn't being said. Yeah. And I was like, Doc, that doesn't help. I was like, I need you to help me out with this answer. And mm-hmm. he's like, I can't tell you what to do. And I was like, you're about as much help as my dad was when I asked him if I should marry my now 30-year wife. Yeah. And he's like, son, I love you. Whatever decision you make, I'll still love you. Dad, that's not helpful. <laughs> he laughed. And I was like, no, seriously, Doc, you got to help me with this. And he goes, I can't tell you the answer. I was like, I don't want to be standing at the pearly gates telling, you know, asking God why you didn't help me with this. And have to have him tell me I sent you a rowboat, a powerboat, and a helicopter. You didn't take any of them. Yeah, man. So it was, uh, and he laughed. And I go, Doc, I think I hear what you're saying. Put unfit for duty in there. Mm -hmm. Did I make the right call? He's like, you had to decide whether you wanted to walk when you were 60 or be an operator. Yeah. He goes, the truth of the matter is, is that with all that kit where your lower back is at right now, you'd be kitted up in a Humvee. You would turn to get out. Your hips would stay in place and your upper torso would turn. Gosh, dog, man. So he goes, you're trashed from vertebrae and disc from T11 down to S1. He goes, I would operate on any one of these. And if we had to operate on one, it's about a 65% success rate because Mm. of where it is in your body. Yeah. And the amount of energy that it absorbs. He goes, but for you, I would want to fuse four or five of them and you see what they're sitting on. He's like, I can't, I can't do anything with that. He goes, until you can't walk or in so much pain that that's what we're going after, we're not operating. I went, thank you, doc. And so I'm real specific today about how I eat, how I train. Yeah. I mean, people, I mean, I had a friend tell me not too long ago, we're not a deer stand. And he's like, you're the most able disabled veteran I know. And I'm like, I'm pretty on the outside, but I'm a mess on the inside. <laughs> you you know? can't feel all the, all these little aches I mean, and pains. And I wake up every morning and yeah. sit on a heating pad for an yeah. hour just to get going. Yeah. And, and you know, Thank God you made the decision you made in that moment, Chris, because I think there's another thing that plays into that that maybe that doc couldn't understand is that is such a big decision because ultimately the life of your teammates hinge upon the The decision. The liability that I would have been is what made me make the call. That in an operator's mind, that is the the part of making that decision that the doc can't see. You have to say, okay... If we are, if we're in that Humvee and we get in a firefight and they're depending on me to get out and engage this enemy and this happens in that moment and my back, my spine snaps in half, who's going to die? How many guys are going to die Right. because of that? Yeah. You know what I mean? That's a, that's a, it's a tough decision in a way, but when you frame it, with that mind, that and, and that is a true team guy, team member. That that's how he should be thinking, right? Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. But they uh, so they threw me over the fence to Bumed, found twenty percent disabled or uh, unfit for duty. Yeah. Throw it over to the VA, found a hundred percent disabled throughout the process. Ran into the TBI doc, and he walked into him, and he just kind of looked at me. He goes, "Ah, oh, you present well." I just kind of looked at him and said, what the hell does that mean, doc? Yeah. You know, I mean, I can't pick up more than 25 pounds or I wreck my back. 
Mm-hmm. I can't stand for more than 90 minutes without getting a migraine headache. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not in a good place. I'm in a dark place as it is. Yeah. In a dark place. And so it was inside of like a window of 90 days that I go from, you know, the assessment to unfit for duty to March 30th, retired, retirement party, driving in a vehicle cross country with my wife back to Virginia Beach to be closer to family. And uh, it was, that's a big shift, man. I, it's just, I wouldn't recommend all of that. No. It wants for anybody. That needs I mean, to be a two-year process. It, it hammered my wife. It hammered me. I was in a dark place and didn't come out of it for a long time. Yeah. It just, uh, it was hard. I mean, the the challenge I had to do is I had to reinvent myself. Mm-hmm. And I was looking at different types of schools. I was looking at an MDiv in a couple of different places in Texas because of their veteran-friendly atmosphere down in Texas. Yeah. And I had somebody say, Chris, Texas is flat and hot. You ain't going to like it. And your girls don't suffer in silence. And I went, good point. We'll go to Virginia. Um, not knowing my wife was praying that we would go to Virginia next to her, you know, closer to her sister, yeah. closer to my brother. Um, so, but I, I told her, I was like, but I'm still going to go to school, and, you know? And at this time I already had the Navy pay for the masters at USD. So she's like, why do you need to go to school? And I go, well, I'm going to have all this time in retirement, you know? And she just kind of looked at me as she saw the look on my face. She's like, I will not be your hobby in retirement. And I went, well, then I'm going to go to school. And she's like, I, you know, the last two times we almost got divorced. No, you don't need to go back to school. A little OCD when it comes to grades and excellence and really pursuing it hard. Mm -hmm. If you're going to do it, do it well. Mm -hmm. Um, And then uh, I said, well, if I don't go back to school, then you get to be my hobby. And she said, go back to school. So it was, that's, (laughs) that's how I landed at Regent University in a doctorate in strategic leadership. You know, gosh, uh, man, what a lifetime of, of accomplishment and adventure and service and just think of the I I mean I can see this the impact that you had on so many operators lives uh and now what you're doing now I mean dude you did enough 20 25 almost 28 28 years of service when I saw that when I saw 28 years of service on uh, on your profile, I looked over at Blake in the restaurant that day because that's when that was the last time we met. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, I want to see, I want to learn more about Chris. Be- you didn't know I was doing this. Maybe you did. Maybe you <laughs> saw me. But I, I got on my phone. I said, I want to learn more about Chris. And I just Googled you. And I said, 20, I looked over at Blake and I said, 28 years of service. We got to have this dude on the podcast because that I did 12 years, man. And hard years. 12. I did 12 hard years. Yeah. I mean, but 28 years. What a life. I just turned 30. Yeah. So basically my whole lifetime (laughs) and going and then leaving there. And going and getting a doctorate's degree, not to mention you've got your bachelor's and your master's all this throughout this 28-year process of doing all these other big, complex, really important, high-level jobs. Like, dude, my hat's off to you, brother. It, it's, it is such an inspiring life that you've lived. It inspires me to think, holy smokes, man, like, 
That puts uh, my training is never complete on my a new level. That's right. My training is never complete. You are the you are the image of that in my mind. Well, that's I mean, it was reinvent myself so that I could have a job. I could teach from home, and if my back went out, I could just go get flat for a little while or take the meds I needed to take. But I could teach at the highest level. That's why the doctorate. Yeah. If you don't have the doctorate, you can't teach at the at the graduate or the uh, the masters or the doctoral levels. Yeah. And that's what the real gist of it was. But coming down to Georgia, chasing my daughter and future grandkids, Mm -hmm. you know, landed us at Windshape really randomly. Mm -hmm. But now it's being able to take all that time, talent, skills, and experiences and to serve and help others on their journeys to significance in his kingdom. Yeah. That's what's really cool now because people are like, okay, you are definitely a square peg in a round hole around this place, how in the world did you land in wind shape? Because I am. There are people that don't know what to do with me. Oh, I can only imagine, dude. I've thought about that. Well, I mean, (laughs) it's comical because a lot of people, there are a lot of people that love me dearly there. Yeah, yeah. But they haven't figured me out. Yeah. You know, but when I went to the Trump rally a couple years ago and a bunch of other things, they started to think they had me figured out. But we've started this coaching thing now, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's interesting because we just got this feedback through our Google feedback system that just started up. And it was quite comical because of who sent it. Now, mind you, this coaching client wasn't all that big on coaching with me for the first two, but I'll let you read it and see if you want to just take that into context of. But it was interesting, to, and this is unsolicited feedback from her. Mm-hmm. So this is somebody that you coached at, at Windshape? She is. She was an a team member at a Chick-fil-A down in Louisiana. Okay. And she is now working for a, uh, if I get it correctly, if she hears this, it, it's a consortium for animal hospitals. Okay. And and the, basically the acquisition of them. Okay. Um, so she's definitely moved up in her career. But yeah. she's a little different. Yeah. And, you know, just to, to have her give that feedback in the way that she gave it was, you know, it just, it just tickled me. Oh, a hundred percent. The other day, because you know, I went to Regent so that I could do biblically principled coaching. Yeah. Whether I was coaching in a secular environment or a Christian environment, mm-hmm. the, the the client would still get biblical principles. But being able to weave that into all of the other education and experiences and skills and actually having been in positions where people's lives matter and what you do. Yeah. Um, and I think that's part of the biggest thing that changes team guys is, is that people's well-being matters on your decisions. Mm-hmm. Whether you're an mm. E5 or an O6, the calls you're making, there are others that are reliant upon that. Yep. Yep. And it, it demands a, high, a higher level of thought and consideration in those moments. Mm-hmm. And I love how you said too, you know, one of your one of your I guess stipulations or one of your passions were to teach those biblical principles to others whether it was in a secular environment or in a in a Christian 
environment, organization, whatever, where it would be more expected, right? Right. Um, people ask me all the time, how was it being a how was it being a Christian in the SEAL teams? And I don't know your experience, but my experience was it it wasn't hard. Like I I can't ever remember a single team guy that basically looked down on me for being a Christian. No. Like that was that was the ultimate place in my mind to be able to share Christian principles and 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 lessons and 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 whatever it may be in a secular environment cuz the guys I was surrounded with majority of them were not Christian. Right. But it was a wonderful place to be able to share your faith because it didn't matter. In in the yeah. military no in the SEAL teams no one cared what color you were. Nope. No one cared what religion you were. Nope. It was the most beautiful example. One thing the SEAL teams gets right. I think so. It's me too is that it was the most beautiful example of what we should model in culture today. I mean, I've heard of disasters with guys that were just over the top beating people up with the Bible. And that just yeah. gives every, I mean, my premise when I found faith and began walking with the Lord was to try to model that as well as I could. A hundred percent. And I did not, I, I will say I did not always get it right. I had my moments and my stumblings just like anybody else. Yeah. But that was really what I tried to do. And it's not to say that I got it right all the time. I mean, some people say they got a closet full of skeletons. I've got a garage. I mean, it just mm -hmm. I just leave that door locked, yeah, locked down. Um, I just not ever a judgment thing if people did or didn't. Mm -hmm. If they wanted to ask me questions, I'd answer the questions. But I'd just try to model it as as best I could. You're in in that in that environment, and and I even think out here, but especially in that environment, your actions spoke loudest guys in the seal teams you were being constantly assessed by your peers yeah um on all levels your physical mm -hmm. fitness um your mental your emotional fitness uh just all aspects of you you were being constantly assessed by your peers and and um that was the best way to share your testimony amongst a secular environment i think it works here in the world too yeah. just model it man yeah. Just live it. People are going to see it. I think so. Yeah. Well, Chris, dude, we're two hours and six minutes. Time flies. We summed up. <laughs> we, I, I mean, we got to sum up. I think we did pretty good. Yeah. 28 years. And change. And change. <laughs> in two hours and six yeah. minutes. We did. A, that was, dude, I'm so thankful for that conversation, man. It. It's my pleasure. I'm it, so it was, thankful for the perspective uh, of your of your training and buds and what that was and and the dynamics of your career and and your passions. Um, we, I'm sure we could do a whole another episode oh, with yeah. you on current events and what's going on because I know that you're passionate about uh, your nation. Obviously, you served your nation for 28 years, but you're passionate about culture and what's happening in the world uh, right now, and I hope we're able to get you back on the show sometime. It'd man. be fun, however yeah. I can help. Roger that, brother. Let's move the ball. Well, 
Blake, you got anything, man? No, just thanks for, I mean, mostly for being who you, you are. Listen. But, but you got to listen. You got to listen, Blake. Yeah, for coming on the show and, and giving us your time. And, yeah, I didn't add much to this podcast. Not that I do to many, but I really enjoyed listening to this. So we, we appreciate it. <laughs> All right, guys. And, uh, Chris, I wanted to ask you, man, uh, I don't know if you take on if you take on any private clients or anything like that, but is there anywhere you would want listeners to connect with you or find you and follow you if they want to learn more about you, man? I mean, I'm on Twitter. I mean, I'm on LinkedIn. Okay. Easy to find me there. Um, if they're seeking coaching, you know, it's one of the best, I mean, one of the best ways to do it is go through Windshape due to the pricing. Okay. I think that's just, you know, from that standpoint, I wouldn't want to say, yeah, come to me, coach. I'll coach you on the side for three times what, I, you know, the, the Windshape Foundation is well supported, yeah, by the by the Cathys, and uh, it's a great organization. They've got all kinds of opportunities there to help families in different phases of life create that space that really gives them the opportunity to reflect and take in the blessings that uh, are afforded us. But yeah, I can totally uh, look into coaching people from that aspect, or if they want to come to a leader or a team development program there at Windshape, Windshape.org. It's uh. It's a good place. Roger that, brother. Appreciate that, man. All right, guys. Hope you enjoyed it. If you got anything out of the show, if you uh, if you had as much fun as I had listening to Chris's <laughs> stories, share the show with somebody. Um, this would be a great show for uh, a, a young person that is thinking about going into the the teams or or something like that or serving in the military. Uh, share the show with someone that is also going to get something out of this conversation that we just had. Uh, we love you guys. Thanks for listening. Enough said.